Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome back to another episode of Adding Context. Today's guest is Mr. Scott Berline. He's a writer and horticulturist extraordinaire. Thanks for uh, coming on. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> so uh, I met you probably about a month and a half ago at a convention for the New Jersey Shade Tree uh, Association. Um, you gave a, a pretty interesting speech, and, and what captivated me was the transformation you did within the Cincinnati Zoo, which hmm. people who don't immediately recognize your name, you're the head horticulturist. No, I'm a manager of, of botanical garden outreach. And my boss is the director of horticulture. Okay. His name is Steve Foltz, and he's the driver of everything we do. Got it. So a little bit about you. Where, where are you from? And, you know, what's, what's, uh, which, what was your, your upbringing, things that kind of brought you and formulated that idea that you wanted to kind of be so familiar with plants? Uh, it was a crazy road, actually. But, um, you know, I grew up uh, in Cincinnati. And uh, my my dad was a good gardener. We come from a a long s- string of gardeners, basically. And um, but I didn't have much to do with it except for like, around fourth grade. I really got kind of involved in the the vegetable garden that we had. Really enjoyed doing that. Kind of actually sort of fantasized in you know kid way of of teaching people how to garden as I was out there in the heat and hoeing weeds and so forth. Um, but then you know high school and girls and running around having fun and uh, wound up not really knowing what I wanted to do. I got a communication arts degree at Xavier University here in town and then uh, graduated in 83, middle of a a big um, recession and jobs were hard to come by. So, and uh, I met the girl I I wanted to marry and, and, and she was in town too and basically kind of just took the first decent job that came, that was available, which was uh, as a reservations agent for Delta Airlines. That wound up being a job I kept for 25 years. And uh, But in that interim, when we bought our first house, and I had some ground that uh, that genetic bug uh, bit me <laughs> and uh, kind of went absolutely ape crazy. <laughs> I don't know how colorful it can be with the language, but we're absolutely speak not. freely. <laughs> freely. Okay. Yeah. And uh, just, you know, within months had the huge organic vegetable garden. And within a couple of years, they had a little orchard and we were tapping maple trees and making wine and uh, oh, it just went over the top. And um, about, uh, I think we were there for about seven years. And just as we were kind of getting ready to move, which was just a few houses up the street, actually, um, I started getting the bug for roses. I had read a book by Thomas Christopher called uh, In Search of Lost Roses, which was really uh, kind of half history and half horticulture and went into how these heirloom roses been kept around the country and being were being rediscovered and and uh, it just was a really cool story. And and so by the time we moved into the new house, which is a 150-year-old farmhouse, but uh, I kind of was well into the transformation into ornamental horticulture and uh, hit it with the same enthusiasm, met a lot of friends, uh, some very good ones. Just a lot of it was pure luck, uh, just, uh, you know, the right person at the right time being here to be a mentor uh, or to teach me. And a lot of it was on, you know, garden uh, chat sites, chat chat rooms, I guess you call them. And Mm -hmm. just, you know, ran into people who were real experts and really were willing to share what they knew uh, with somebody as, as enthusiastic as I was and open to learning and respectful of, of what they were teaching. And so when I was about 48 years old, I had put in 25 years at Delta, and uh, they uh, offered a package. Uh, it was kind of one of the downturns in the airline industry, and they offered a package to uh, 
all the older expensive employees, you know, it's like, here, take this, get out of here. You're we'll, we'll hire some new cost saving. Yeah. Cost <laughs> savings, downsizing all those terms. And, uh, and uh, it's kind of a funny story because uh, they gave us, I don't know, an extraordinarily long period of time to decide six weeks or something like that. And I came home and I told Michelle about it, my wife and, and uh, we just sort of, just sort of offhandedly discussed it. No big conversation or anything. And uh, at first I was kind of eager, pretty, pretty open to the idea of leaving. And, and, you know, and then as the weeks went by, you know, I'm kind of thinking, you know, it's a steady job. You know, it's not as, it's not that bad. I can get by. I'm doing fine. And I, I like the people I'm working for and, and so forth. By this time I was at, at the airport, which is a pretty fun place to work. So, the, the last day came and I, I worked that day and had no intention of, of putting my name in for the uh, retirement package. And, and Michelle got home uh, from work about seven o'clock and I was just tooling around on the computer and she came in here and, and she said, um, isn't today the last day for that retirement? And I was absolutely blown away that she remembered it was the day. I mean, I, it, it had been weeks since we discussed it. And I said, well, yeah, yeah, it is. And she, she said, well, are you going to do it? And I said, I, I don't know. I said, should I? And she said, I think you should. <laughs> so, so was, amazingly, I, I, I don't know how I found the website that, that we were supposed to go to, to, to apply for this. And so it was, you know, incredibly long application, you know, putting in all this information and uh, finally got through it. And she's standing over my shoulder and I uh, I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm saying I should do this. And she said, yeah, and the submit button was right there. And I clicked on it and a new window came up and said, um, all right, okay. We realize what you did. Are you sure? Because if you <laughs> want to continue with this, it's over between us. We're done. You know, this is a final decision. You will never come back to work for Delta again. We'll never see each other it is over. I was like, Okay. So I clicked the submit button saying I still wanted to go through with it. And it came back again. Are you really sure? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and by the time I got through all that and, and finally hit the submit and it said accepted over, uh, I was a delirious fool, you know, kind of hypertensioning and everything. Went to work the next day and all the guys were like, what did you we didn't think you were going to do it. And, but it turned out to be the best decision of my life. I, I've been doing landscaping on the side, more like gardening, really, just on the side. I had a, a truck and some tools, and I had been doing that for 10 or 15 years to learn, to raise, you know, to pay for my habit, basically, of plants and so forth. And so I uh, just converted that to full-time uh, for a couple of years. And in that interim, I started to write some articles and and through one of those articles, uh, Steve Foltz, who I mentioned earlier, uh, saw my name and was like, who the hell is this? And uh, gradually we came to know each other and uh, do a few projects together. And, you know, I, I kind of wore, gathered up the the, um, the courage to ask him, you know, hey, is there any job for me at the zoo sometime? And he said, nope, absolutely not. No. <laughs> uh, it's not how it works at the zoo, but uh, a few months later, somebody they never thought would leave the zoo left, and that was a vacuum and more or less kind of a precursor of the job I would actually build and sort of what Steve had in mind. And and so into that slot I went and, and in a lot of ways kind of made my own position there, um, you know, with Steve, of course, helping me out kind of figuring it out and we both kind of figuring it out as we went because at that time the zoo was was doing some incredible horticulture but not really anybody knew about it even internally within the zoo you know it's all zoo people and educators and they kind of they like the horticulture in the gardens and so forth but they kind of don't really you know didn't understand why it was important to take it further right and so my job was to go out and get bring in attention for us and try to raise the awareness internally too. And here we are 13 years later and uh, we've come a long way. We just got uh, what was the highest accreditation for uh, an arboretum that there is the Arbnet uh, level four uh, this summer. 
So we're getting acknowledged uh, by a lot of different groups. We had a big breeder showcase that brought a lot of top industry people into the zoo this year uh, to see a lot of our annual displays, our perennial trials, our annual trials. Uh, and we're doing a lot of work with the with several community gardens, but in particular one just around the corner from us at uh, Rockdale Academy, which is it's an amazing, honestly, a mini botanical garden uh, on a two-acre setting right there with a with a, an elementary school, and it's really a, a it's it's fun for us and amazing for us. But when we bring people in and show them what we're doing there, in, a, in addition to what we're doing on our grounds and so forth. Uh, people are blown away. So to kind of jump back ahead, can you give us a good definition of, of what horticulture is and, and varying styles or types of horticulture? Because you mentioned ornamental, yeah. and I'm guessing that's different from some of the other styles. Right. Yeah. Um, so horticulture, basically the art and craft of gardening uh, or of plants. And that's, you know, it's a tough, when you think about that, you know, it's combining science you know the the science of growing things the chemistry you know the physics um, you know dealing with infinite variables as far as weather and insect pests and all the all the rest with the art of of design so you know there's a lot of people who are really good with art and a lot of people that are really good with science uh, but not that many that are good with both um, and even in within horticulture there tends to be a divide those that do the science and and those who do the design side uh, the zoo is is pretty good at, at putting them both together but uh you know categorically within horticulture there's there's all kinds of it basically comes down to the different kinds of gardens so the the, the divide that i experienced was between a you know vegetable or almost an agriculture or permaculture type of of gardening where you're you're growing for food and that can be done you know with aesthetics in mind but Usually isn't. Uh, it's more of a production-based uh, type of of gardening, whereas ornamental horticulture is about the art. You know about you know residential garden design, uh, public gardens, great gardens, formal gardens, informal gardens. Yeah, you know, all the way down to sometimes you know preservation or restoration pro uh, projects are are kind of sort of encompassed within horticulture. Um, that's a that's a kind of a gray area there, but uh, basically that that probably defines it. This might seem like a, a dumb question, especially after the presentation that you you gave from May. How crucial is horticulture when it comes to designing habitats at a zoo? Yeah, at, at a zoo, um, wow, that's a that's a good question because personally, I feel it's incredibly important. Uh, and, and, and incredibly important on a, on a lot of levels. It, it's for the, the care and comfort of your animals, uh, for the, the comfort and enjoyment of your of your guests. And then, of course, you just want to strut your stuff when it comes to, you know, the, the combination of animals and plants in a single place. What a great educational or research opportunity that is. And it just, the sad thing is, it's not done much. Uh, there's a handful of zoos that call themselves botanical gardens, zoos and botanical gardens, not many. And a lot of them do pretty good jobs of just, you know, doing their basic grounds, maybe a little better than you would expect from a theme park or, you know, that type of thing. But, and I haven't been to a lot of zoos myself, but I've, a lot of zoo world people have come to us and, and told us, you have by far the most beautiful zoo I've ever been to. And, you know, other people say, oh, I've been to this zoo or that one. And, you know, it it, it just didn't have that horticultural component. It might have had some shrubs. It might have had a few trees. But it was there about the animals and, and really complete afterthought for anything, re, you know, about plants. But we have statistics and we know, uh, you know, that, that, the comfort, and I call it the embrace of of a, of a of a botanical garden, of the beauty of plants, tall trees, the whole mix down to the the ground. It just it it it. There's all kinds of studies that show that you know that connection with nature, whether it's real nature or a really good representation of it with with horticulture, it's really important for people's health and well-being, their comfort, 
And we know that people that come to our botan or our zoo and botanical garden, you know, statistically, April is a terrible month for most zoos. We have a large tulip display, very beautiful and you know just stunning, and that's one of our better months. Uh, we know that that our members uh, and, and visitors stay longer than the typical zoo member visitor does. And presumably, I guess, I don't know, that uh, if they're staying longer, maybe they buy an extra soda or, you know, a waffle or a waffle fries or something. I don't know. But, uh, you know, I think, um, you know, it, and this leads to that whole health thing that, that, that I'm all about, too, is, you know, and hospitals are finding that, you know, pe people, patients with window views of any kind of nature. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, are they recover faster? They need less medications, uh, fewer complications. So uh, you know, it's it's just that that thing. And you know, you never know what one of your visitors, what what world they're coming from, what what baggage they're carrying into the zoo. You know, health wise, family wise, uh, all the stresses we have going on uh, in our own little worlds, and they. They come to the zoo with all of that, and maybe by the time they leave, uh, some of that is 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 gone or has been relieved for a while. Yeah, is, do you think it, the zoo doing better and the botanical gardens doing better in a, in April, which is I'm guessing a high pollen kind of month? Is it because you guys have strategically implemented the use of like low pollinate pollinate pollen type of plants and trees? Uh, actually kind of the opposite. Um, you know, it's just a miserable month weather-wise in most of the upper half of the United States, upper half of the eastern United States. Uh, you, in April, we get some nice nice days, you know, a couple, you know, it, you know, it can be snowing uh, in, in 15 degrees on Tuesday, and by Thursday, it's sunny and 70. But, uh, you know, uh, April is just, it's just a kind of a muddy mess, and even a lot of the plants are just kind of cranking up at that time, really aren't putting on much of a display yet, but those tulips are really just vibrant and colorful and people just need them at that time of year. It's like, bring it on, you know? Um, but it's funny you mentioned pollen because, uh, you know, one of, one of the great associations in the world of animals and plants are pollinators. And, uh, you know, we do our best to, uh, have as many pollinating plants as we can flowers from April, March, even all the way to October, November. So something for the pollinators to visit during that entire time. And, and then host plants as well for the uh, caterpillars, for the butterflies and the uh, moths. The, 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 the ones that cause people misery are the, uh, the wind pollinated plants, which typically are the big trees. Right. And there we have them. They're in the neighborhood. Everybody has them, so it doesn't really matter where you are. If uh, that time of year, if you're allergic to an oak or a, a, a maple, you're going to be in misery, whether you're at the zoo or inside your own home. Yeah, I, to back to your your point about just being in in that kind of area, being in an environment that's that vibrant, that clean. I guess would be mm -hmm. airs is cleaner. It's just. Yeah, if you feel better, you feel invigorated. I mean, I've we have where I live. I'm I'm right in between New York and Philadelphia. Philadelphia Zoo is a little easier to get to, and I can you can definitely say that walking through there, spending a day, you know, whether it's the animals, the plants, the combination of everything, you just leave there in a much better mindset. At least for me yes. and my family, anyway. That's great. That's great to hear, and it's interesting that we're talking about the Philadelphia Zoo because. Uh, we were the first one to charter in the United States in, uh, I don't know, 1873 or something. But they were the first to open. So we're, between us, we're the two oldest zoos in the country. I, I, and, did, I did notice that. <laughs> and, uh, actually, <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and uh, Andrew Bunting uh, from the um, Pennsylvania Horticulture Society there in Philadelphia uh, actually brought, uh, I, believe, I believe it was the... Uh, the director or the director of horticulture from the Philadelphia Zoo to come see us a couple couple years ago, and we got to show her around, and uh, it was it was really a great visit. I unfortunately 
had the slimmest chance of, of visiting while I was in Cherry Hill for the, the tree conference and we couldn't make it happen. So I haven't been there yet, but that's, that's on my radar. Got it. So uh, in doing my research for about the zoo and just so I have better understanding about Cincinnati, cause I've not been fortunate enough to get that far out West. However, visiting the zoo is now on my bucket list. So, um, mm. can do, what do you know about the, the lead design that you guys have been implementing within uh, the zoo? How does yeah, that come that, to play with the horticulture and stuff? Well, yeah, that's a good good question too. Um, that's driven mainly by our uh, vice president of, of facilities and uh, sustainability, Mark Fisher, who has done amazing things at the zoo, uh, pushing for uh, not just pushing but accomplishing a lot with uh, water retention, rain rainwater retention, which is a big problem in our in our part of town, and. Uh, we have worked hard to, right now, I think we're at about a third of the zoo is, is all that water is retained on, on the grounds. And by, I think next summer, uh, all of it will be. Wow. Uh, we have the largest solar array publicly displayed in the country over our parking lot. Uh, and along with that, um, early on, even before Mark Fisher came on, actually, we, we had our first LEED certified building. And now anything we do, is is lead certified uh and i forget what is it the highest is platinum and the next is gold or whatever it is we're always shooting for the top of, of those and, and, and some of the, those higher levels and i'm not super familiar with all of it but those higher levels require certain certain marks be hit is regarding the, the, right. the landscaping around it and and so forth and and we're uh, we're doing all that. It, it, the amazing thing about that is, um, you know, it, you, in a lot of ways you think, oh, some brand new, you know, lead certification, new technology, new studies, all, new research, new all of this. But a lot of it just comes down to, to good old fashioned good horticulture that's come down through the ages. You know, good soil practices, great plant selection, great diversity of plants. Uh, things like, you know, lower inputs, uh, you know, and gardening for pollinators, basically, uh, if you're doing things right, you're gardening for pollinators, whether you know it or not. <laughs> and, uh, or if you're aiming to garden for poll- uh, pollinators, then whether you know it or not, you're gardening right. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's a, a neat thing. Um, but that's one of the cool new things about uh, uh, horticulture that is, is new is this awareness of what we do at home, uh, how we we treat our, our urban and suburban landscapes has a lot to do with building e- ecosystems by starting with, with insects. How much do you think um, technology has helped or, or hindered or changed the art of horticulture? Hmm. One I haven't thought of. Um, you know, the tools are basically the same. You know, you're lifting heavy things, you're turning over earth to some degree. Some, some people are trying to go no till, but I mean, and, and that has validation, but when you're first installing a garden, when you're first putting one in, there's really no, not much choice with that. You have to turn the earth. I, I would think that the technology comes down to measuring results more than anything. It's like uh how much carbon does a tree sequester? You know, how much rainwater are we catching? Uh, what is the percolation rate of of a particular piece of ground? How much runoff from excess fertilizer is there? How bad are some of these insecticides and other other chemical inputs? Uh, it's also, you know, one of the areas where I think technology really, really does a great job helping horticulture, and this is a broader definition of horticulture, but uh, is urban forestry uh, because they can use satellite data and so many things to determine which parts of a town or city have the greatest amount of canopy, you know, what, what percentage of canopy and, and use that to, to, to determine where you need trees planted to, you know, uh, reduce the heat island effect and catch more water and, clean the air better and right. so forth. I know my borough is, is currently, I believe we're aiming for, don't quote me on the number, I believe we're pushing for about 25% canopy for our little borough, which 
yeah. given given our makeup and, and our layout it that's that's pretty pretty sizable <laughs> yeah i mean it's on the low end uh i think uh, most uh communities are pushing for 40 or 50 percent mm. but you gotta start somewhere right and uh, yeah is it is it safe to say that when you're kind of we'll say breaking ground and i'll use the example you gave um when you were redoing that couple acres in within the zoo for the new habitat is it safe to say it's kind of like a recipe of of getting the, the soil right and the mixtures right and things to blend so you, you actually have things grow the way that you want them to grow and stay mm-hmm. um yeah you know it, it, from from the earliest days of agriculture people have known that uh, adding organic matter to soil is just super fundamental for right. uh creating a good good soil that that roots can grow and that holds water well drains okay at the same time you know holds on to uh nutrients well and put puts a lot of things out there that that microflora and microfauna can can cling on to and then they do all the heavy lifting <laughs> they <laughs> might be microscopic but they do all the heavy lifting as far as you know making it all work right. and uh, you're making it possible for the oaks and the other things to, to thrive, creating a soil that, that can handle a great diversity of different plants. So um, what was the question again? Where, where, where did we start this? Uh, I was asking, is it kind of like when you're, you're laying out and planning a, a new area that's kind of say barren, is it like building a recipe of, of layers for, the groundwork well, and making sure everything. I kind of bristle at that idea, but that's exactly what we're doing. You know, it's it's go in. You know, you come in after the construction guys. The soil is a mess. It's you know, it's just the all subsoil that's been compacted beyond belief. And uh, we kind of do have it down to a a recipe where you get that out as much as you can, get that bad soil out of there, and get rid of it. Uh, and then you come in with with good soil with a a decent amount of organic matter and you build it uh, high and you stay off of it. So it does not get compacted and you get your plants in and you mix that diversity. in. Uh, you know, basically we, we are always try, short of sunny spaces and we have them during those new projects, but we always plant shade trees too. So within 10 or 15 years, it, our sunny nice spot became shady, but then, we're kind of counting on another project down the line somewhere, giving us more sun again. Got it. But, but yeah, you know, it kind of does. It comes down to just sort of the same routine almost every time. Now, there's going to be some variation. You know, you might start with more shade in a particular place, and that changes how you how you put the plants in. And, and you might want to do something really kind of different. This doesn't happen much, but you might want to have maybe, you know, a cactus garden or something like that. So you're going to change... Your, some of your soil composition and, and some of how you do it for that kind of thing. But still the, the, the choices, the, the series of choices that you have is could almost be written down in an org chart and followed every, every single time. Where has the, the job taken you to that you didn't expect to be at any given point in your life? <laughs> well, that's a, yeah. Um, yeah, no, if you had, you'd asked me this 13 years ago and I would say that, you know, I got to go to new, the New Jersey shade tree conference and speak to <laughs> 600 people that would not have been in my wildest dream. You know, I went out to Kansas city earlier this year and spoke to the international master gardeners conference. And that was a room of a thousand people. That's, you know, quite a thrill for me, you know, nerve wracking, but fun, you know, no public speaking is, is what it is. You know, it's, People are afraid of it for some really good reasons. <laughs> it can be um, intimidating. <laughs> yeah, it'll 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 get your blood blood going. You know, getting to meet so many people throughout um, the green industry and the public garden world—that's just been a thrill and a half for me. I mean, I w I had done a pretty good job of meeting people, and knowing people before I even came to the zoo, but this just expanded that exponentially and. It's hard pressed, yeah, you know, for me to for a major figure in 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 North American horticulture that I either don't know or know of, you know, and and it's kind of the other way around. People kind of I'm not that I'm more of like a B actor, I think, but people have heard my name and and I've I've been doing uh, interviews with 
some of the top horticulturists, not only in the country now, but now I've had a few from other countries too, uh, for horticulture magazine, which I, I write for. And, um, you know, I called up some of the top guys, you know, the Mick Jagger of horticulture or the, uh, <laughs> or the, the, the Elton John or Taylor Swift or whatever metaphor person you want to name. And, um, all but one have agreed to it. And the one that didn't was just because they, they, they were shy and, and uncomfortable with it. But, uh, that's been a thrill being able to do what you're doing with me, with them and, mm-hmm. and, and learn more. Even today I, I interviewed, um, Steve Castorani, he's the owner of North Creek nurseries, which is out your way. It's in, um, I think it's, uh, land, Landon, Landenburg, uh, Delaware. Maryland, right where it all, Maryland and Pennsylvania and Delaware. Yeah, all it's one of the most, definitely one of the most progressive uh, minded uh, growers of perennials in the country who've innovated a lot of things. And, um, you know, I've known Steve for several years now and uh, he's spoken at our conferences and, and um, you know, I've met him, hung out with him at different conferences and other places and things. But talking with him today, I learned a whole lot more about him and about the history of the industry that I, I, I just didn't know. It was totally fascinating. So, you know, a lot of fun things. I've got some things on, on coming up that I think are really cool. I can't really talk about them yet, <laughs> but some opportunities I think are really going to be exciting. And it's, uh, you know, it just kind of goes to show, you know, and this one thing I like to tell people, young people who are getting into horticulture right now is, is uh you know it's hard work it's you know when you're getting started you're you're out in the weather and you're digging work soil heavy work it's it's manual labor a lot of it but it also requires a lot of brain Mm -hmm. um but the need is 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 growing and growing constantly and you know the number of people coming into it is underneath or below what are needed and for anybody who is passionate and excited and eager to learn and eager to work, there's a really good future in horticulture right now. You know, I think a few more years, if you're good, you can definitely get a higher wage than what we're seeing now. And and the work is so rewarding, the, the things you get to work on and do. I saw that you guys are affiliated with Miami University, basically for a doctorate degree in is that in horticulture or is it just uh, some sort of environmental um, science or? I think it's envi- environmental science. I've, I've toured a couple of those, those classes around and it's really, I mean, talk about people who are eager to learn and, and willing to work and really, really fun talking to those, those groups, those classes. Um, but I don't know that much about it, but it, yeah, it's, it's kind of a p- part of our education department in conjunction with Miami University. I think they call it uh, Dragonfly. But, uh, yeah, th- in fact, there's a, a gentleman in our uh, office right now who's part of that um, and is volunteering with the zoo and helping uh, work on on some things uh, with the pollinator program and the community gardens and that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, it's a really cool program. I, yeah, I apologize. I, I really wish I knew more about it and, uh, I wish I could pass it along, but yeah, I, I just sort of have sort of tangential kind of interaction with it. What, um, based on your experience, what are some of your, your favorite, I guess, what is your favorite plant and your favorite tree? <laughs> no, man, it's like <laughs> uh, you're naming your favorite kid, um, <laughs> on, on, on different days. Um, Favorite plant right now, I guess I'm just gonna go into perennial world because I've been thinking about that. But uh, there's a native um, perennial uh, called Spigelia marylandica. I think the common name. I'm terrible with common names because uh, I didn't learn that way. But I think it's called Indian pink. But it's this beautiful native that actually I don't you know in the wild I I I, I wish I knew exactly where. It, grows most, but in gardens, it's pretty much anything from pretty, pretty heavy shade to full sun. And it just has this beautiful little habit, nice dark green foliage. It's about 12 inches to 18 inches tall, maybe. And for a long time in summer, and then sometimes with the rebloom, you get these almost um, 
chalice shaped flowers, extreme saturated red on the outside, and then the inside of the petals are yellow and with a little star kind of tip at the top. And it's just extraordinarily beautiful. I looked, I mean, uh, I looked it up and it, it's actually interesting looking and beautiful color to it. Yeah, very different. It's very different and so easy. Uh, you know, it's not easily propagated by nurseries. Uh, so it's only starting to get in garden centers more and more in the last few years. But I'm, hope, I'm sure it'll catch on because it's such a good plant. Uh, for a favorite tree, I'm going to just go with, um, well, I mean, I really love Japanese maples, but I'm going to s- swerve away from that to a tree I have uh, mixed emotions about is uh, ginkgo. You know, uh, uh, the ginkgos this year were just absolutely spectacular with their fall color. Total yellow, maybe maybe better described as gold. But it's what I like about it, why I just wanted to bring it up, is it's 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 a tree that's been on the planet for 250 million years maybe it's been through dinosaurs it's been through all the the continental shift and you know various climate changes uh, meteors and all kinds of of things and um it survived all that we we almost wiped it out it was down to a uh, it was out of the wild it's native to asia and it come down to a, a just a few populations at at different monasteries where it was kept by monks um, but uh, from that number of trees, it's been expanded out through horticulture all over the world uh, as a very common tree. It's, it's, you know, unfortunately, it's not a great tree for pioneers because nothing eats it. Right. Uh, and uh, but uh, that's also kind of what's good about it. You can plant it in a downtown in the forest site, and it'll just chug right along. Uh, in a better site, they get to be massive trees. And just uh, just pure grandeur, really. The the downside, the the one downside. Okay, well, downside number one, they don't do much for pioneers. They do provide a nut or a fruit for for wildlife and habitat, and they do other things. You can put them wherever, like I said. But that fruit, nut, nut, man, I tell you what, the, the nut is fine, but it's inside a fruit that um, on the female trees, it, it, it the fruit is formed, and it is. Really, really, it smells so bad, <laughs> you know, and it comes down in profusion, big pile, you know, just all, you know, underneath the tree. And, uh, you know, that's a, that's a small thing. It's a problem for about three weeks or, well, maybe four in the, in the fall where it all breaks down a little bit and the smell goes away. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is, um, it's one where you want to make sure you have a male tree if you're putting it in an urban situation in a parking lot, somebody's front yard, uh, that kind of thing. But um, what a great tree. It, I pulled up a picture of it. There's like a sky tower, and then there's another one that's a little bit more full. But either way, yeah. the color on that is, is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, I wish yeah. I would have talked to you like this past spring because my wife and I were trying to figure out some of our soil issues and things like that. And we ended up, uh, we had a willow tree that we planted when we first bought our house 20 years ago. And it survived for a few years. It was growing great. And then we got hit with the hurricane. And I literally sat, watched it as the winds were blowing and just tilted, tilted. And it just fell oh. over. I'm like, shit. <laughs> and it sat for a while. And we got a lot of sitting water there. So yeah, I planted two things that the guy at the local nursery said would be great for that water area. And it really didn't help pull up the water too much they're they're living but um we ended up yeah. getting a cherry japanese weeping cherry or something along those lines oh those are those are nice like snow fountain or something yeah. like that um, yeah and it i guess it was a bad year to plant because it just didn't do too much hopefully it recovers next year oh hopefully you said, you said it was a wet uh, site yeah very 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 damp and cherries are mm, they can take some of that but it's not Generally, the one of the ones I go to the minute I think about a, a wet soil location. But good luck with that. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it is a beautiful tree if it catches on and grows for you. I'll have to pick your brain for some ideas later. Absolutely, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> what about um, for for people that are looking to to start their own vegetable garden? What are some of the the easier vegetables to to start things with? That's kind of funny because uh, you know I started out with with the big vegetable garden and then i was away from it for 
I don't know, 25 years or something. And then I tried to go back uh, two or three years, like COVID years. I was like, eh, let's, let's put, plant some vegetables. Vegetables are really hard <laughs> compared to ornamental horticulture. They, you know, the, the people who can do vegetable gardening really well really have my admiration. You know, it's like what we like to eat, everything wants to eat, you know, right. and and then, you know, everything's been bred for bigger fruit, better fruit, this, you know, all the this and that. And, you know, survivability is kind of down on the list and, you know, pest resistance is down on the list and all the things that, that make it, ornamental gardening basically by comparison so much easier is just reversed with when it comes to vegetable gardening. But uh, the easier ones, um, any of the herbs, as long as you keep them dry and full sun uh, and, you know, kind of keep an eye on the hardiness site, those are easy. Um, tomatoes relatively are pretty easy because peppers are too. Uh, leaf vegetables are, are pretty good. The hard ones I find, um, are the, the cucurbits, like the, um, cucumbers, squash, uh, squash is definitely easier than cucumbers. Uh, but, um, you know, a lot of things, there's a, a couple pests that just can wipe that out in a heartbeat, you know, and, um, corn, I haven't tried the corn in a long time. I don't have enough space to really do that. That's, uh, a pretty easy one, I think though. Um, but, uh, I would, you know, basil, I love growing basil. Um, smells good. <laughs> yeah. It's good for, you know, pesto and cooking. Uh, and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful plant. Those are the things I think of that are, that tend to be pretty easy vegetable world. You, again, you know, it's a lot comes down to the soil. You really want to have good, loose soil with, uh, a lot of, uh, organic matter, you know, nutrition, you know, fertilizer, not, you know, you, with, with a lot of uh, organic matter, you don't need for fertilizers, but just a lot that, that pr brings a lot of fertility to, to the soil. Uh, you're more sandy there. So that it's a little different where with sandy soils, uh, than on clay soils, like we have the, the clay soils do a great job of holding on to uh, nutrients, uh, where sand kind of loses them pretty fast, but, uh, denser and sand kind of filters things through yeah what advice would you give to to anybody if you could just impart your your wisdom of experience in dealing with uh, the vegetation of of the world <laughs> just grow more more of it you know the uh, and, and diversity i think is key it's you know at the zoo we have so many different plants again all, all the way down from you know really big trees down to you know, ground covers, everything in between. It does so much. I mean, it kind of spreads your wealth around. So your garden is more enjoyable all the time. There's always more going on. But the diversity itself attracts a lot of pollinators, which quite a few of those are actually real, really good on pest pest control. They, mm -hmm. they do a lot to keep the balance of good and evil insects <laughs> level and working in the world. It's what, what kept it right before... Monsanto got invented and all of that other <laughs> stuff worked really well for a long time, still does. But, uh, yeah, diversity of plants, you know, start with good soil. You know, if you have a limited budget, do what you need to to build a, a good soil base first. And then, you know, come back with your plants. Plants come. You can grow them from seed. You can borrow, you, you know, get, get friends to divide for you and so forth. So diversity, good soil. Uh, you can do research that really helps uh, when you're choosing your plants. If you go online and look for a plant trialing that goes on in, in your region, you can learn a lot. Uh, you know, Rutgers in New Jersey does plant trialing and Cornell in New York. A lot of the universities have really, really good plant trialing programs. And a lot of the botanical gardens does. Mount Cuba just down the road from you it does a great job with uh, particularly with with native plants and um, and then some of the big growers um, with the big greenhouse companies and so forth uh, do a lot of good trialing too. So, you know, key I, I would say is, is developing a, a good garden bed, um, choosing your plants for diversity and then wisely choosing which ones you use for your conditions, mm -hmm. know your conditions uh, for, you know, and, and then be realistic about it. You know, I don't, I'm as guilty as anybody about saying, oh, I think I got enough sun here for that. Now, um, if you're realistic, it helps a lot. 
And then don't start too big. You know, um, that sounds a little ironic or opposite of what I've been kind of pushing because the more plants we do everywhere, the better off we are. But um, nothing's worse than, than a, a gardener that gets overwhelmed over their head, frustrated <laughs> and quits. Uh, so starting out easy, kind of working up is, is definitely a, a, a good way to go. Got it. So I'm going to jump into my, my fun questions. Uh-oh. Uh oh. With the first one being, what do you think of garden gnomes? Garden gnomes. <laughs> well, okay. Mixed emotions because you, I'm, I'm kind of an anti-garden art guy because <laughs> I don't know. I've seen it done bad so much, <laughs> but there's the all things must pass George Harrison album where he's sitting on his cover with a bunch of garden gnomes. So, uh, yeah, boy. Love hate relationship. I think garden garden gnomes are better than others, you know. So um, if they don't look too cute, I, I'm I'm a little bit more inclined to like them. <laughs> I, that, you, you might like my Halloween decorations. Then I have I have three garden gnomes that are one's got a, a Jason mask on, holding a butcher knife, and uh, another one looks like a zombie. I'll I'll send you a couple of pictures because they're I, I, I love like to see those. <laughs> uh, let's see the second question: If you were a tree, what kind of tree would you be, and why? I'd be an oak because, man, a, a, a big old oak is, and I'm old and big, but uh, a big old oak is about as impressive a thing as you can possibly have. I, I think I would I would either say an oak or a redwood. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Going out west to the sequoias or the, the redwoods. I was, I was staying in my zone, my my Midwest you know, <laughs> area. Of, yeah, but yeah, boy, a redwood. And you could see so far. Yeah. <laughs> well, the taller you are, the kind of see over everything. Over the others, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, this one might, you might actually have some literal hands-on experience. Which would you rather cuddle, a koala or pal around with a panda? Well, we we don't have either. Oh, I, um, I know the pandas have kind of been being recalled, so to speak. Diplomatic pawn. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, boy. I'm going to say koala because they're smaller. And if things got out of hand, you could, you know, get away from it. Well, I don't know. Pandas are slow. You know, they're both wild animals and, you know, they could bite or scratch or something. So whichever one is easiest to get away from quick is <laughs> I think the one I would choose. I actually just found out something very interesting about koalas. The sounds that the T-Rex makes in Jurassic mm -hmm. Park were basically the same sounds that a koala makes. I, I was blown away by the the, the depth that's, and, that's and the, pretty amazing. the the resonance that these little creatures that look cute and adorable can make. It sounds so terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was slightly modified, but it is still pretty uh, pretty impressive. And for the last question, would you rather be royalty a thousand years ago or an average person today? Oh, an average person today. Yeah, even if you know royalty a thousand years ago, I, I you know I was reading something like. Uh, Oh, the French palaces, you know, as, as grand as they are. First of all, I've been to Versailles. It doesn't look like any place you'd want to live. <laughs> I mean, it's nothing. It's opulent, yeah, but it would it be comfortable to live in? No. And there were no toilets, so everybody was taking dumps in the hallways. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'd, rather, I'd rather be relatively uh, uh, lower class, this day and age, where there's clean bathrooms, you know, most of the Eating, time. air conditioning. Yep. Yep. Stuff like that. <laughs> I greatly appreciate your time. Um, any any parting words? Where, where can people read your stuff, um, follow up oh, on yeah. you, contact you, all that other fun stuff? Okay, yeah, that's cool. Um, so I do write two columns for uh, uh, Horticulture Magazine. Uh, one is the, <laughs> I write the interview column. So I write five questions and then they, they do all the work, but it, it actually is a, a fair amount of work to put this together. But, uh, uh, and the other one is uh, the, the end page, you know, deep roots column, which I try to keep it light and entertaining and kind of fun, funny. <laughs> I think I succeed about half the time. <laughs> and, uh, um, and then I also write for garden rant, which is, uh, uh, one of the older blog sites for horticulture, for gardening. And interestingly, it was started uh, by five women back in the day. And, and uh, a couple of the well, one, one and then one of the very early ones to come on are still with it. Uh, and then uh, the 
I think there, we have a total of seven uh, regular partners uh, on there, uh, one of whom is uh, Marianne Wilburn, which she and I, we have a kind of this uh, sort of a, what do you call it, um, sort of this this fun sort of back and forth um, letter writing thing that we do, which is, I think, a, a great example of two people who are pushed near, nearly to the point of madness by trying to do too much in the garden. Uh, but it's a lot of fun. And then, you know, just whatever rant I want to come up with uh, about once a month for those, uh, and hopefully a little bit more next year. I'm trying to clear a little time in my schedule. But but uh, that's a good, good blog site for people to look at because, um, you know, there's the seven or so writers. So there's a new opinion. And it's all opinion, almost all opinion. So it's it, it's fun. It'll piss you off sometimes. It'll make you laugh sometimes. Uh, it'll make you think almost all the time. So that's it's it's a good place to, for people who want to learn more about gardeners gardens think about gardens uh, to go and check out. You might might not read every one, but uh, you might also read every one. So um, those those are the main things I do. I'm out there speaking fairly often now. So if I I might show up at a town near you, you know. Well, I can highly recommend that if you. If anybody does see your name that you're giving a speech somewhere or a talk somewhere, I highly recommend if you can attend, attend just your, your explanation and the information that you shared specifically about, you know, the functioning of trees, the importance of trees. There was a picture you showed of a town with trees and without trees and stark difference. It was, it, oh, was, yeah. it was truly amazing. But yeah. uh, I definitely recommend anybody catch it because you're you're one of those people who can give something that most people give a talk on something that most people would probably think is dry and dull, and you definitely add life to it. <laughs> no, well, thank you very much for that. I appreciate that. With that, I I thank you very much. Thank and you. I, I really enjoyed this. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon. Send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.